This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 10, Evil Spawn. I've always had a really great respect for the idea of six degrees of separation. Essentially, the notion that we are all connected to each other through six people. With more than seven billion human beings on the planet, it's sort of crazy to think about. Obviously, most of the people we meet in our daily lives will never be more than just surface connections. I mean, if we had super deep conversations with people we just met trying to trace our connections to, say, the actor Kevin Bacon, that would be exhausting. And that's really not what intrigues me about the principle. I guess for me, what I extrapolate from this idea of being connected through six people is the way it relates to storytelling and how unknown connections bind us together. The things that we've experienced and the people that we know have the power of connecting us all. But it is a special feeling when these connections manifest themselves With pitch-perfect timing, when someone swings into your orbit, and without even trying, these deeper connections are revealed, as was the case with Joyce and I. So I'm Joyce Walters. I'm the executive director of InvestEd, which is an educational nonprofit that serves students statewide. Joyce Walters and I got to know each other on the surface level through her work as the executive director of the nonprofit InvestEd. And I want to pause here for a second. I want to give a plug for organizations like Invested and the people like Joyce who quietly do the work without paying attention to see if anyone's watching. What I mean by that is that Invested and Joyce help kids in the Pacific Northwest. Say a kid comes to school with holy shoes. Invested empowers his teacher to reach out to their organization and just say, hey, I've got a kid who needs shoes, period. No bureaucracy, no embarrassing questions about why he has holy shoes. The kid just gets the shoes. So I had no idea when I was interviewing Joyce about InvestEd several years ago for a feature story I was writing that she was a fan of true crime and that she'd been really close, dangerously close to becoming a victim of Ted Bundy. You know, I had a close encounter with Ted Bundy when I was in high school, and I've never forgotten that. And I've, I've always thought when I'm, when I'm wa- listening to true crime or when I'm watching true crime, which I'm a real... Um, consumer of that genre. But I don't always look at it and say, oh, it could never happen to me or somebody that I know. You know, I always look at it and and I pay attention because I think it could very well happen to someone you know. It could very well happen to you if you're not careful. I also found out that Joyce knew Wayne Anderson, one of the people at the center of the horrific crime that we'll be chronicling today. For me, you know, I'll back up and just say that, you know, I I watch the news like everyone else does. And I heard about this horrific crime and it was shocking. You know, it's it's like the holidays, you're with your families and everybody's kind of on their best behavior until, you know, Uncle John has had too much to drink at the table or whatever. But usually, you know, you make it through the holidays just fine. And hearing about this horrific crime as it was unfolding and then following the news about it. And then when they started to put the pictures up and I realized 
It was it was Wayne. It was somebody I worked with. Wayne was a well-respected Boeing engineer who loved his family. Wayne was the kind of guy who he was quiet, very kind, and very, very thoughtful and um, was always very engaged. He had a very analytical mind and he could think through a problem very quickly and just very respectfully offer his opinion, but was never pushy about it. Um, Anytime I called him and asked him for help, he was right there. He had a great sense of humor and um, was very well respected by everyone. It sounds like you had a professional relationship, but mm-hmm. you know you were cordial and friendly. Did he ever talk about his family or his wife or what she was like? Oh, yeah, or- yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, he he had pictures of his family on his on his desk, and we would talk about them. And you know, if it was time for the holidays, he would always talk about what he was going to do with his family. Or you know, he was always very um, open about them. When Joyce saw the news footage back in December of two thousand seven. She just couldn't believe it. As you were talking and I was listening to you, it struck me as like they would probably be the people that you would least likely to ever think that something like this would happen to them. Oh, out of all the people I've worked with in my career, I mean, I never would have thought anything like that would happen to Wayne. He just seemed on the surface, it just seemed like he had, you know, a really loving family. He seemed, you know, he was the kind of person that you would assume would just be kind of that steady Eddie kind of guy that, you know, you'd love to have as your dad or you'd love to have as your neighbor. Um, But, and it's certainly, I loved having him as someone that I worked with, but I, out of all the people I worked with, I never would have looked back and said, you know, gee, yeah, that makes sense that it would be Wayne. I think that's what was so shocking for me. When I, when I heard the name, I thought Wayne Anderson is a fairly common name. So I'm not going to jump to conclusions and assume it's somebody that I know, right? But when they put the pictures up, I was literally shocked. I mean, I had never seen any indication that there were any, you know, problems in his, in his home life or anything that would indicate he was in any kind of trouble or, you know, there, there was conflict going on at home or anything like that. I never would have suspected that. And here's the thing about that six degrees of separation that I've been talking about, And how I believe that our collective empathy draws us to these true crime stories. Because the Andersons were like so many of us. It's not so much about understanding the person who did it, you know. Um, Because you know there's just a whole thing going on in their brain that you're never going to be able to get inside that, right? But for me, you know, especially with like Wayne's family, you know, to understand that innocence of going through your life and doing what you're doing and cooking your turkey and wrapping the Christmas presents and getting the house all cleaned up and, you know, Christmas music playing and things like that. And, you know, to have that sense of innocence and have no idea that evil is about ready to visit you, you know? And I think I can relate to that because I was a young girl in my teens, just going about my life. And, you know, I, I came so close to not being here talking to you today because if I hadn't had the hair on the back of my neck stand up, I, I could very well not be here. And I think that for me, I have tremendous empathy for the victims in the stories. And I think that, you know, it's almost like a, um, a, a sense of respect 
listening to their stories. And, um, you know, especially when they're presented in a way that's really respectful to them, but understanding that sense that they're just going about their lives. And, you know, there was the carjacking victim that, you know, his wife had hired someone to kill him in West Seattle, I think it was, and the guy's just driving to work. And somebody opens up the door and pulls him out and shoots him and takes his car. You know, I mean, it's like, I have tremendous empathy for him. It's not as important to me to understand the perpetrator as much as it is the victim. And to feel that sense of, you know, I I think I'm part Native American and I think there's just that sense of being a witness and standing with someone. And even though these people are gone, like Wayne and his family are gone, it's still a sense of respect and, and being a witness to what they went through. That's the power of these cases, what the victims go through and why we share their stories. Because Judy was just wrapping her grandchildren's presence in her sewing room, the smell of a roast in the oven filling up their comfortable home, while Wayne was just tooling around, sprucing up things for the family gathering that they had planned for Christmas Eve 2007, not having a clue that evil was headed their way. Judy's best friend, Linda Teeley, abandoned her car alongside the private driveway that wound up to the home of Judy and Wayne Anderson. The Anderson property would be considered Pacific Northwest country. Huge, towering Douglas fir, red cedar, and hemlock. In the undeveloped acreage that surrounded the Anderson property, there were sword ferns, blackberry bushes, and all the other native plants that flourish in the rural pockets of western Washington. The metal gate at the entryway of that gravel driveway was closed up tight, which was odd to Linda, who was very familiar with the in-and-out tides of the Andersons' family routine. Not only was she Judy's best friend, but her house was also on Linda's postal route. Linda stared at the closed gate, secured with a chain and several padlocks. That wasn't normal. The metal gate did its job keeping out cars from going up the driveway. But it was easy for Linda to shimmy around it. Nothing was going to stop her from finding out what was going on with her friend. Linda and Judy worked at the Carnation Post Office. And Judy's house was nearby. Carnation is about 25 miles to the east of downtown Seattle. But when Judy didn't show up for work that Wednesday, December 26th, Linda called her house and her cell phone. There was no answer. The whole thing just didn't add up. It had been two days since Christmas Eve. Why hadn't she heard from Judy? In the days leading up to Christmas Eve, Linda had a front row seat for Judy's excitement. She had been over the moon about hosting this Christmas Eve dinner at her place and making all the preparations for the feast, the presents, and the party. Now, days later, and she still hadn't heard from her friend. The thing that pushed Linda over the edge was when Judy didn't show up for work. That was not like her. In fact, Linda left work early to go check on her dear friend. And as she made her way to her car, warm tears started to slide down her cheeks. She just knew that something bad had happened. Now, as Linda walked up the long gravel road to Judy's home, she was feeling the isolation. She'd been so fraught and distracted with worry that she'd forgotten her cell phone at work when she'd left that day. Like so many pockets of heavily wooded solitude in the Pacific Northwest, it was quiet and freezing cold. The only sound came from the crunch under Linda's footsteps. Homes around there were spread out. 
It was the kind of place where you might not see your closest neighbor for days at a time. Linda walked past a rough-looking trailer on Judy's property. She knew that that was where Wayne and Judy's adult daughter, Michelle, lived with her boyfriend, Joe. Linda kept walking, passing the trailer without stopping. She had long passed the point on that long driveway where she could see the country road that she'd left behind, along with the safety of her car parked by the metal gate below. With each step forward up that hill, Linda had to feel a gnawing in her stomach, the comfort of civilization slipping away. But she pushed on, and finally, at long last, Judy and Wayne's modest rambler came into view. Her pace quickened again, and as she approached the home, her sense of dread rose in her throat. Why wasn't the dog nipping at her heels? That was the usual greeting when she came over. Linda walked up to the house. The frigid December wind blew through the mature evergreen trees, their branches swaying around her like a whisper as if the trees had secrets to tell. But Linda wasn't listening to the trees when she knocked on the front door. She was praying that Judy would answer, that she'd been silly and foolish, that there was some logical explanation for it all, and that everything would be right in the world again. But that didn't happen. When Linda moved to a nearby front window with a view into the living room, she knew that the world would never be right again. As she pressed her face to the glass for a closer look, there was something on the floor No, it wasn't possible. Was that a body? Who could blame Linda if she would have just bolted, ran back down that long gravel driveway, jumped into her car, and raced to the nearest phone? She would have had the perfect excuse. She'd left her cell phone at work. But Linda wasn't that kind of friend. She wiggled the door handle. It was unlocked, and she crept inside. And it was worse than she'd feared. A sight that would rock Linda to the very studs of her existence as she took in the bodies of two adults and one child. Because Linda didn't have her cell phone, the only way to call 911 was to move through the home. She knew in the back bedroom there was a phone. And from there, she called 911. The audio's a little rough, but Linda says, Oh God, there's a baby and a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. Linda thought the two adult bodies were Judy and Wayne. The man's laying on the floor, the baby is only like two or three years old. A male and a female. And a baby. Okay, can you just... The operator told her to go back into the living room and check for a pulse. Despite being terrified for her very life, there was a real practical reality to that fear. The killer could very well still be on that property at that very moment. And her chilling premonition would be recorded. It's incredible to think about it. Linda's nerves and a little coaxing from the operator. She stayed put until police arrived at the scene for more than 35 minutes in that back bedroom. When the deputies arrived in the light of day, the horror of it all was beyond comprehension. Three generations 
of the Anderson family, including two small children, had been murdered. Wayne Anderson's lifeless body had been drugged into the backyard and covered with cardboard. In a nearby shed, deputies saw Judy Anderson's body, her denim pant leg visible through the shed's cracked open door. The two adults that Linda had discovered in the living room weren't Wayne and Judy, but their adult son, Scott, and his wife, Erica. The child was their three-year-old son, Nathan. But what Linda didn't see was that Olivia, their daughter, was found behind Erica's body. It's believed that Olivia had burrowed under her mother, most likely trying to get away from the shooter. Wayne Anderson was 60, Judy 61. Their son Scott was 32. His wife, Erica, was also 32. And their small children, Olivia, 5. Nathan, 3, had all died from gunshot wounds. Retired King County Sheriff John Urquhart, who at the time of the crime was a public information officer, says that when officers arrived at the Anderson home, it wasn't clear why the Anderson family had been targeted or by whom. But what was it like when you got there? The bodies were still in place, and they would stay in place, in this case, probably for two or three more days while we do the investigation. These are exceedingly complicated investigations from a forensic standpoint. I mean, we have to map and photograph and diagram, and there's an awful lot that has to be done. Remember, the bodies are, are, uh, two of the bodies were in a a back outbuilding, uh, and, and the four of the bodies were still in the house. It didn't take long for the King County Sheriff's Office to mobilize at the Anderson home. It was a controlled chaos. As the crime scene perimeter tape went up, droves of police cars lined that country road as news helicopters flew overhead. Media vans camped out as reporters broke the news live from the road, updating a stunned community with bits of information that slowly trickled out. Urquhart says, given the circumstances, it was a shocking murder scene, the worst in his entire career. You know, we hear a lot about the kids in this, because they were literally toddlers. And like I say, I've, just as, you know, as a, as a patrol officer, uh, I've gone to, uh, to many homicide scenes. I've investigated homicides uh, as a plainclothes officer. Uh, and as, a, uh, as the public information officer for over 10 years, I went to almost every single homicide in King County. This one bothered me more than anyone else. This is the only, literally the only homicide I've lost sleep about because of how the kids were killed, which I have obviously have personal knowledge of from talking to the detectives. So it, it always, it's interesting. I, I've always thought about that just from that standpoint alone. More after a word from our sponsors. A few hours after police had arrived at the Anderson home, walkie-talkies began to squawk. Word spread to the command staff positioned near the top of the driveway closer to the Anderson home that there were two people in a truck at the metal gate, and they were asking officers posted there to be allowed to go home. The driver of the truck identified herself as Michelle Anderson, writing shotgun was her boyfriend, Joe McEnroe. Michelle explained that she was Judy and Wayne's daughter, that they lived in the trailer on the property. We knew that they lived on the property and they were gone, but we didn't know why they were gone or where they had gone and had no reason to think that they were the suspects. Michelle and Joe were directed to park their truck on the side of the road. When they walked to the gate, a plainclothes officer escorted them up the gravel road on foot. 
and they make their way through this this perimeter of parked cars and this gaggle of press that was huge and walked up this driveway to get to our command post. So they're walking up this driveway, presumably to find out what was going on. From the sidelines, a media videographer captured footage of Michelle and Joe from behind as they walked up that gravel road before they wound up to the house and out of sight. In a sea of law enforcement, the two looked out of place. Michelle was dressed in black shorts, a black shirt, and black boots. She had long, mousy brown hair and slumping shoulders. Joe wears a gray t-shirt, black jeans, with a dangling wallet chain, a fully engaged law enforcement presence, as well as a cordoned-off press junket relegated to the rural sidelines, took in their every step. Urquhart clearly remembers watching them as they were greeted by detectives. I was told when they came onto the property, when they were allowed to come onto the property, that this was the, the surviving sister, if you will, and her boyfriend. And they're walking up this long driveway, and I'm watching them. And I thought to myself, these guys did it. Really? I thought, I just, in my, for no reason other than, you know, I've been a cop for a long time. I've been a cop for 43 years. So at that point, 33 years, 32 years. And so I've seen a lot of suspects. And something about their body language, you know, the hairs in your back of your neck, this, yeah. this gut feeling. And I had no reason other than that. I thought, yeah. Well, 33 these guys years. Did it. These guys did it. As Michelle and Joe stood telling police who they were, neither of them asked what was going on or if their family was okay. Very first clue that we had that something was going on here in this particular situation. Imagine if they were innocent and they come back to their their house, their parents' home, their home as well. And there's all these police officers and all this press and, and you have to be approved to walk through this and crime scene tape and you're allowed to go through this crime team tape, what's the first thing you're going to, what's going to be the first words out of your mouth? Are my parents okay? What's, what's going, going on? on here? What happened? Are my parents yeah. okay? Yeah. They never said that. Those words never crossed their lips. So, of course, we're going, the detectors are going, what the hell? You know? I mean, that's that's just a... One, a crime, yeah. just crime 101. Sure. Like, you know, yeah, pretty much. Act like you care. Detectives told Michelle and Joe that they wanted to speak with them separately. It was casually presented. They just wanted to get some information from them independently. They're not even taken down to the police station. Their interviews are going to happen on the property. Michelle is taken to a vehicle by a detective. Michelle, are you where the statement's being tape recorded? Yes, I am. Do I need permission to do that? Yeah. Okay. At the same time, Joe's with another detective in a truck nearby. Joe, are you aware that the conversation we're about to have is going to be tape recorded? Yes, I am completely aware that they are tape recorded. recorded. Okay, do I have your permission to do so? Yes. The questions are softball. Who are they? How they came to be living on the property? Joe explained that he met Michelle online and their relationship blossomed. So he moved from North Carolina to be with her. Joe explains that Michelle was living in a crime-ridden mobile home park where, according to them both, they'd been besieged by punks messing with them. Joe worked at Target, and Michelle had been employed off and on as sort of a security guard, and for a short time, she'd worked at the post office with her mom, but that hadn't worked out. The previous year, Michelle and Joe's living situation had become so tenuous that mom and dad— that's what Joe called Judy and Wayne, that mom and dad had offered to let them come live with them to help them get on their feet. 
At the time, the trailer on Wayne and Judy's property was occupied by a long-term tenant. Eventually, though, when the tenant moved out, Michelle and Joe moved in. Mom and dad helped us move. That'd be Judith and Wayne. Yeah, yeah, Judith and Wayne. Mom and dad. They they were my mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. I never met my dad, and my mom ruined my credit, and just, she told on me so much, man. Please, please. It's okay. (laughs) Sorry. That's okay. This is my family. And um, they they helped us. They, uh... They brought all the stuff up here. We went and put all the stuff in um, in Shell's old old room, and um, and we uh, lived in there for uh, for a little while. And we uh, she was working at Nintendo at the time. That's okay. So they ended up working with Judith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long did you live with them? We uh, uh, only months. Only months. Now would that be in the house here? Yeah, that 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 was in the house though. So Michelle and Joe had been living rent free for about a year. Both were unemployed. Joe had recently quit his job at Target, so they told investigators that it was the perfect time to drive to Las Vegas and elope. In fact, this was something they had told mom and dad about on Christmas Eve before they left. So when you told Wayne and Judy, did you tell did you tell them when you were going to go, or just no. that you were going to do it? Wait, did we? No, we said that we were going to go off and that we were going to that we we were, that I was going to be uh, that I was going to be Joe Anderson by uh, sometime around uh, New Year's. Okay. You know, I gave him a time frame. It's like, look, I know this is going to be hard to hold on to, but it's only going to be until about New Year's, okay? We're going to we're gonna get down there. We're going to do this as, as soon as we can. So they knew you were going to Vegas? Yeah, they knew we were going to Vegas, and they knew that we were going to be going as soon as we could. Okay. According to Joe, mom and dad were excited for them. And a short time later, the couple drove off on their romantic adventure to Las Vegas. Meanwhile, Michelle said she knew that Scott, her brother, and his wife Erica and their two children, Olivia and Nathan, were coming over to celebrate Christmas Eve. But they had left before they arrived. But when you went up there, it was just your parents there. Mm-hmm. Right. And how did they react to you guys getting married? Okay. So you told them. Okay. All right. And then what were your plans for Christmas Eve? Well, I was just going to go out and start driving down to At this point, the detectives interviewing Michelle and Joe in those separate vehicles started to press them for a timeline, what they'd been doing over the last 48 hours. But what they were saying independently wasn't making a lot of sense. Joe casually explains that they'd taken off on Christmas Eve and it was still light outside. They grabbed their cat, Sweetie, and headed out. But they realized after driving for hours that they had forgotten the cat and so drove back. They left again and then came back for Michelle's wallet. It was all muddled and really tough to follow. You guys left on Christmas Eve, yeah. uh, went yeah. out for about four or five hours, realized Michelle left her wallet. Yeah, and no, 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 we, back. We, no, 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 we went about four or five hours out. That's what I meant, yeah. yeah. Out of town. And then we, you know, and then we, you know, found our way back. Okay. Come and back. Yeah. what time did you get back on Christmas Eve, do you know? It was really dark. Do you remember if it could have been I, past midnight or? No, it wasn't past midnight. It was, was it? I think it was so. I think it was somewhere between ten and twelve. And um, when you guys came back, did you see Wayne and Judy? No, no. We we went straight home. Okay, straight home. We went straight home because you know <laughs> we realized. Yeah, that's what it is. We realized we had forgotten the cat. We must have forgotten the cat because it's like we wanted to go off and make sure that she was okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, and then just what like, happened after you guys got home? When we got home, we uh we just okay we we uh, talked about what we were gonna do. Okay. You know, the past couple days have been just us talking about the stuff that we we're going to do. Okay. You know, and... Hang on one second, Joe. Okay. stand up and get my coffee. Okay, go right ahead. The time is 12, 14 hours. Do you hear the investigator getting out of his vehicle? 
This happens multiple times throughout the interviews. Remember, they are still at the property where six people, including two small children, have been murdered. And this is important because as the interviews are being conducted, the crime scene is under a microscope, which means these detectives are getting real-time information about what happened based on the position of the bodies and the forensics. And the detectives speaking with Michelle and Joe are also taking breaks to confer with each other. In Michelle's version of events, she and Joe had driven back after hours of driving for her wallet and then left again because she wanted to come back for some fruit that was in the trailer. I wanted some of the, some of the fruit we left behind. Why'd you want fruit? Yeah, because we have so much in the In your trailer? Yeah. Okay. What kind of fruit was it? Apples and oranges. All right. And then we went back out. Okay, so you come back here and get the apples and oranges. Yeah. Did you talk to your parents then? No, I just walked into my house and did that. Okay, was it dark when you did that? Yeah. So it was after, say, 5 o'clock or something? Yeah. I didn't talk to anybody. I just went in the house and got Okay, but Michelle, I just want to get this straight. You leave your home sometime in the morning. You drive through Monroe. Oh, no. When you left, though. Okay, but let's say, was it before noon? No. Afternoon? Mm-hmm. Okay. Two, three, what? I think, like... It's clear to investigators that their story separately and together is a murky labyrinth that doesn't add up. In fact, listening to Michelle is like being stuck in quicksand. Her whispery tone at times, it sounds like she's about to fall asleep when investigators try to pin her down on exactly what they did over the last two days. Came back for your wallet, came back for your fruit. And you came back to assess whether you should drive to Vegas or not. Yeah. So you came back a total of three times. Two. 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 Well, we were out and we got lost and I didn't have my wallet. At some point to try to make sense about why they can't remember with much specificity as to where and how they drove, they are both asked if they were under any drugs or alcohol over the last 48 hours. And they're both adamant that they don't do drugs or alcohol. So why were they having such a hard time recalling what they did? The only thing that they are absolutely clear on is that they left Michelle's parents home ahead of the family gathering alive and well before their impromptu road trip to Las Vegas on Christmas Eve. After nearly an hour of trying to establish a timeline for Michelle and Joe's movements, after they left their home on Christmas Eve, the detective gets down to brass tacks. Your parents live and you live in a pretty quiet setting area, correct? Yeah. Kind of in the country, so to speak? Yeah. All right. When you came home, what did you see at your at the easement road to your property? My car was still there. I, I mean today, right now. I see a row of cars. Was there some media members out front? There was a van that had a weird thing. Okay. Uh, was there some sheriff's cars there? Did you see a lot of police cars when you pulled in? I just saw a lot of these type of cars. And there's cars lining in your whole driveway, right? Well, this is our driveway. I thought they were just the Wilson. Okay. You know, this is technically the Wilson no, property. Michelle, I understand. I'm just saying this is unusual, right? Yeah. When you and I were talking, they brought in this big RV from the sheriff's office, didn't they? So this big RV. Yeah. yeah. And they also have some helicopters in the air, didn't they? Yeah. And people running around in uniform and things like that? Yeah. What's the one question you asked me when we first sat down? Right. Did the deputy at the road... I mean, obviously, they didn't let you drive down here. What did they tell you? They tell us anything. It's a parked car. What do you think all these police cars are here? I think the house is on fire. Why do they think that? Last time I saw a helicopter, she was in the old house. Was on fire. So whose house do you think is on fire? Oh, yeah. 
Are you at all concerned about that? Yeah. Do you think me wearing this sheriff jacket, I'd be in a position to know such a thing? Yes or no? Yeah. Why didn't you ask? I'm just, I thought I wasn't supposed to ask. Why? I couldn't. Well, I wouldn't have asked. You can ask me anything you want. Have you ever seen this many police cars in one place at one time? And the house was on fire. Was it that many police cars or was it a fire car? Fire truck there. There was police and fire. Have you seen one fire truck since you've been here? Michelle was the first to break. Michelle had been arguing over Michelle paying rent to live in the trailer on her parents' property. And Michelle claimed her brother Scott owed her $40,000. But when asked the same question, Joe said it was $3,000 and that they gave that to her brother for an engine that he said he would put into her car. The car in question was over at Scott's house. Anybody else with that? <laughs> it's my kids. Joe is not part of it. It's just me. 
But the crime scene doesn't support this claim. The detectives tell Michelle there's just no way, based on the physical evidence, that this was the work of one person. At this point, Michelle continued to be adamant that Joe had nothing to do with killing her family, that it was all her. The detectives interviewing Michelle take a break and share the information that they've received from her to the detective speaking with Joe. Armed with this new information, the investigator climbs back in the truck and reads Joe his Miranda rights. The fear in Joe's voice is palpable. Some other information has come to light. Okay. So uh, before we go any further, in order, I want to treat you fairly and be completely yeah. honest and upfront yeah. with you, which is the way I work. I don't tell people lies. It's just not the way to go. Okay. Um, yeah. And I expect most people like yeah. to be treated yeah. that way. Uh, yeah. Before we go any further yeah. along with the interview, um, I want to make sure I'm treating you fair. Okay. Uh, I want to go through your Miranda rights with you real quick before we go anyplace else with this, okay? Yeah, okay. What I'm going to do is I've got my card here. Um, if you'd like, I can give you a form to read along with me, or we can read along the card together. Um, I'm just re- How about I read them to you, and we'll go from there, okay? Does this mean I'm not going to be able to get married? What's that? Does this mean I'm not going to be able to get married? Oh, you can probably still get married. This this, this oh, won't affect that at God, all. Thank also, you. Yeah, this is not going to affect you getting married whatsoever, okay? Yeah, um, okay. Let's go through your Miranda morning show, then we can continue our interview. If that last part was hard to hear, Joe is asking if by reading him his Miranda rights, does that mean that he'll still be able to get married to Michelle? Now, it's hard to know if that's what he actually felt or if it's a part of his story and that he still thinks there's a chance that he's walking away from his involvement in murdering six people, including two children. This is when the detective goes over the timeline again and drops the hammer. Okay. Um, since we've been here, we've been in here talking probably a couple hours now. Let's see. It's 10 to 1. You and I have been sitting here since 10 after 11. So about an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. We really haven't talked too much. We haven't talked at all about Wayne and Judy and why we're here. Do you have any idea why we're here right now? Why the police are here? I don't know. I really have no idea. Something's happened up at the house. Wayne and Judy have been hurt. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Okay. Uh, We've been talking to Michelle as well since you guys came back. Yeah, yeah. Michelle's with my partner, Detective Thompson. She's been with him. Yeah. Uh, Michelle is being very truthful with us. She's being very cooperative. Okay. She feels, I, I think Michelle feels some regret about some things that have happened the last couple of days. Okay. Uh, I can look at you. I've been doing this for a long time. I think I'm a pretty good judge of character. Yeah. Looking at you while you've been sitting here, I can tell you're kind of upset about something as well. Uh, you yeah. seem like you're, you're a little upset. Yeah. You're if, feeling bad about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, of course I'm feeling bad. If something's sad to, if something's sad to them, yes. how, how can I not feel bad? Okay. You know, I mean, are, are they okay? Uh, we're, they're at the hospital. We're going to try to find out if they're going to be okay. Yeah? Okay. Okay. okay, good, good. Um, Michelle has been very cooperative with us. I believe, in all the years I've been alive and as long as I've been doing this work, things usually happen for a reason. Um, yeah? Oftentimes it's a good reason. Sometimes everybody has their own view on it, but 
usually things happen for some kind of reason. There's usually an explanation for something. Yeah. I always think it's fair when I'm dealing with people to try to find out those reasons and to be as honest and as fair with them as okay. possible. Okay? okay. The story you've told me about where you and Michelle have been the last couple of days is not consistent at all with what Michelle's been telling my partner. These couple times I've stepped out of the truck, I've been talking with him okay. real quickly, and Michelle's telling us an entirely different story. Okay? Okay. She's saying that there was an argument up at the house between her and the family, and that some bad things happened, and that you were there and you witnessed a lot of it. What I'd like to find out from you, so we're able to be as fair with you as possible, is what was going on up there and why you think it happened. That can be very important for Michelle. Now, at this point, Joe is still playing as if he wasn't involved, but it doesn't take long for him to realize that their plan of trying to get out of what they did was never going to work. How they ever thought that they could walk away clean from this is beyond the pale. I, I was in uh, the sewing room, post room on the left. Okay, as you come in the front door? As you go down the hall, it's the post room on the left. Okay, so you're in there with Judy. Yeah. Where were Michelle and Wayne? They're out in the living room. We heard a pop and we ran out. And she was standing up with a gun jammed. Okay. And... So you and Judy heard the pop? Ran out. And... What did you see when you got out? I, I saw Dad standing up, holding back his head, looking over, like, what the hell is that? And she had the gun, and it, it was, you know, the slide was back because it had jammed. And what happened after And I had the uh, 357 on me. Go ahead. I, I, I couldn't let them hold home. I couldn't. I understand. She's all I have. So you came out after hearing the pop. Michelle's got the nine millimeter, and, and she's and she's backing away. She's horrified at this point. I want you to know this. She can't believe it. I do want to know. She she is horrified, and you couldn't. Win. I I couldn't lose. You understand? Could lose Michelle. Michelle. Okay. I shot. You shot Wayne. What happened after you shot Wayne? I shot Mom. You shot Judy. What happened after that? We tried cleaning up. We tried to get rid of you know, the bodies. How did you do that? We were going to drag them into the shed. Dad was too heavy. I, I couldn't get him up. Were you able to get Dad outside at all? Yeah, I was able to get him up to the shed. And, and that was just... We couldn't do it. We couldn't we couldn't get him into the shed. Okay. How about Judy? What happened to her? You got her into the shed? I, we were able to get her into the shed. We were able to get her into the you shed. You and Michelle. What happened after? We cleaned up the blood. We were going to try and... We were going to try and pretend that everything was cool with them. Were they there by this point? No. Were they coming? They were coming. Did you know they were coming? Yeah, yeah. What time were they supposed to get there? About four o'clock. Once Joe started spilling his guts, his detective goes and speaks with Michelle's detectives. And they come back and are like, Joe's telling the truth. You better start telling the truth, too. Joe is talking to the other detective and he's telling the truth. Yeah. I mean, because everyone just wants... If Joe played a part, you know, everything can be figured out, okay? Everything can be figured out. I'm not telling anybody. It's okay. all my fault. Oh, I don't want him in trouble. I know, it's but, but we're, Michelle, what we're asking is just tell us the truth the first time around because right now he's telling the truth. Michelle told detectives that she was angry at her brother because he owed her money and mad at her parents because they didn't take her side in the dispute against her brother and that they were pressuring her to start paying rent to live in the trailer on the property. And according to her, she just flipped out. You're freaking out for 20 seconds or 10 seconds. This takes place over two hours, Michelle. Oh, 
after me. I got paranoid. I thought they were all after me. Because why would they think Scott's side? They must all be out to get me. And I got paranoid. It was crazy. And is your story Joe went crazy too? You got paranoid? No. My guilt trip is in the Michelle says that she told Joe if she couldn't work it out with her parents, that she was going to kill them all. So how did you, how did you guys talk about that? We had a, okay, after I asked her, I was like, look, you want to just leave? I mean, maybe you want to just move the truck? How about we just go move the truck, okay? Yeah. No, no, that's not how I said it. That's not how I said it at all. I, I said it, how did I say it? Maybe we should just go move the truck. What's that? Maybe we should just go move the truck. Okay. And she... I was asking her if she wanted to. I, I was give, I was trying to give her a chance to back out because I, I could see that she wanted to. I knew I wanted to, and she mistook it for me goading her on. And she's like, "No, I can do this. Here, keep an eye on mom. I'll take care of dad." We'll be back after a quick break. It wasn't long after that that Michelle admitted that when they drove up to her parents' house on Christmas Eve, she wasn't going to try to work it out with anybody. She was going to kill her entire family, and Joe was going to help her. They had made a plan that Joe would distract Judy in the sewing room where she was wrapping those Christmas presents for her grandchildren. Meanwhile, Michelle was ambushing her dad. Neither Wayne or Judy had the faintest idea that the sweatshirt wrapped around their daughter's arm when she walked in was covering a fully loaded 9mm and that in Joe's pocket was a 357. When Michelle confronted her dad in the living room, she shot him, but it wasn't fatal. Her gun jammed. Joe and Judy were in her sewing room and they heard the shot and Wayne screaming. And so they ran to where the two were. Joe sees that Michelle's gun is jammed and he then shoots her father in the head, as Judy witnesses the entire thing. I told and she she was screaming no, and I shot her, and she fell down. She was she was still alive. And I told her that I was sorry, and I shot her in the head. Michelle and Joe dragged the bodies of her parents into the backyard. They had plans to bring both of her parents' bodies into the shed. Wayne was too heavy, and so they left him on the grass and covered him with cardboard. Then they went inside to clean up the blood so her brother Scott and his family wouldn't be suspicious. When Scott and his family arrived at the home, they all settled into the living room. They asked Michelle where Judy and Wayne were. Michelle lied, saying they were in the bathroom. Within five minutes, Michelle was confronting Scott about the money he owed her. According to Michelle, Scott said, I don't have to listen to this shit. At this point, Michelle opened fire on Scott and Erica. Despite being shot twice, Scott charged his sister and tried to wrestle away the gun. She shot him. Since she had the gun out, he charged. Okay. Okay. She shot him, and I think the first time she shot him in the torso. I think the second time she got him in the throat, because when I was when I was pulling him back, I felt a hole. And she's using the 357. Yeah, because this was this was whole thing. Scott died fighting for his family as he wrestled with Michelle, who was still holding the gun. You know, I, I tried to pull him off, and maybe I shot him too. I don't, I don't know. Meantime, Erica managed to run for the phone. She crawled over the back of the couch and called 911 and was able to connect. He won over the couch, even though he had been shot. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she went over the couch to call? Yeah. So she actually called 911 and she'd been shot. So, who shot 
Scott, four times. I shot Scott and Erica. And what about Joe? Apparently, Michelle ran out of bullets, and Joe went up to Erica and pointed his gun at her. Joe grabbed the phone out of her hand and yanked the batteries out, throwing them aside. He had heard that the 911 dispatcher had answered the phone before he disconnected the line. In a desperate plea to save her children, Erica begged him to stop, saying, We love you. You don't have to do this. But her pleas had no effect. Why did Joe shoot the kids? How old are they? How old are the kids? Well, I want to know the ages of those kids that were shot. Three and six? What's the three-year-old's name? And what's the six-year-old's name? Olivia. Who told Joe to shoot the kids? I did. Are you sure? Did Joe shoot the kids? That doesn't make any sense. I think we have to kill everybody. Because I was afraid. And what? See this? And then they live like this the rest of their lives. They're scarred forever. After Joe murdered Erica, he turned his attention to three-year-old little Nathan. And I just want to warn you that this is going to be very hard to hear, so listener discretion is strongly advised. Before Nathan died, the little boy lifted up a heart-wrenching offering as he locked eyes with Joe and held up the phone batteries to him. I took the phone from Erica, okay. I ripped it open and threw the battery. And I went to go out and find, one of the things I wanted to find was the phone, the uh, battery, and the, and the back. I don't know what happened after, after Mason picked up the battery, but he, he held it up and he gave me that look of complete comprehension. He knew he was done. Now, had you shot Erica yet when that happened, or no, not yet? She had been shot at this point, but not fatally. Joe would admit shooting three-year-old Nathan first, saying he was closer. Then he shot Olivia. After the massacre, the house was silent. The smell of pot roast, eviscerated by the gruesome scent of gunpowder and blood. But Michelle and Joe's rampage wasn't over. They turned their attention to that 911 call. They shut the metal gate at the beginning of the gravel driveway and put chains and a lock around it. There was a sign at the gate that warned to keep out. Would this be enough to deter any law enforcement that might respond to that 911 call? In the pitch black night, Michelle would say that she went down the road and secreted herself within the woods to wait and see. It was that split second when, we're caught, when I ran out of bullets trying to unjam the gun that she called the cops. Do you know what she said? It was a hang-up. And the cops were dispatched, but the gate was closed, so they didn't come up. How do you know they were dispatched? Because I saw them on the road. You saw them on which it's road? Up the paved one that leads up to the ground. Because I just played, because I was freaking out. And then I, I came back, and I waited for them to come back, and they didn't. Later, Urquhart explains that the deputy who responded to that 911 call made a controversial decision that would ultimately save his life, although he didn't know it at the time. Could he done anything to save these people's lives? And based on the timeline, we don't think he could have done anything. But we did learn from our suspects that they knew he was there and they laid in wait. If he'd come up that driveway, just a wooded driveway, they were going to shoot him. On the one hand, many people think he should have gone up that driveway. On the other hand, we're also glad he didn't because it probably could have turned out very badly for him. During Michelle's trial, the 911 call that Erica had heroically made was played in open court. On the witness stand, Erica's mom would tell the court what she knew was her daughter's last words during that 911 call. Two voices. 
that's Erica. Can you tell what she is saying in that excerpt? Not the kids, no. After murdering six people, Michelle and Joe went down the hill back to their trailer on the Anderson property. We, we went home and we tried to relax. Uh, I couldn't play video games. I, I couldn't, you know? I, I couldn't even play a video game. I... Joe would describe their decision to come back. We were heading up to Canada. We talked back because he didn't want to be fugitives. Okay, we wanted to go off and talk to you, to you guys, and either be okay or be screwed. And all that mattered is that this had ended one way or the other. When Michelle's sister Mary was on the stand at her trial, she shared a harrowing conversation that she had had with Michelle shortly before the murders. She flipped out. She got really upset, angry. She says, I hate them. I hate mom and dad. I hate Scott. I just want to kill him, and I don't remember everything else. Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. And I said, I won't. Of course, later that day, that was the first thing I did. What was the first thing I you told did? my mom exactly what she said. Did you take her seriously when she said it? I, no, not really. I, no, of course. Who thinks somebody you grew up with and you love is going to slaughter your whole family? One can imagine that Mary is still haunted, not only by the fact that she lost six members of her family, but also because she and her children were planning to go over to Wayne and Judy's that Christmas Eve, too. I heard Michelle, is Mary going to be there? And I said, tell her, yes, I'll be there. Ms. Anderson, may I ask you, uh, did you go to your parents' home on Christmas Eve 2007? No. And why not? I was sick. My youngest son and I, we were getting sick. Didn't want to spread our germs. After all the BS was stripped away, near the end of Michelle's interview in that police car, Michelle finally gives her reasons as to why she killed six members of her own family. Would you have thoughts of killing them, though, or one of them? That week. Okay, how far back in the week? A couple days prior or a month prior? How long have you been thinking about killing Scott or your family? Uh, Let me guess. More than a week? Two weeks. Is that why you went up there with... They kept talking about picking me out. Get my money back from Scott. At the end of Joe's interview, 
we could have just turned around, went back down, and and lived lived somewhere else. You know, clothes will be damned. And these guys could have lived their little lives by themselves, and everything could have been okay. And we we realized that after the fact, and we both did. And we have been able to sleep at night because of that. That's understandable. Somebody, <laughs> it's our time. We've been just wishing that we could go and say, back. <sighs> On March 4th, 2016, Michelle Anderson was found guilty of six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life imprisonment. On March 25th, 2015, the jury found Joseph McEnroe guilty of aggravated first-degree murder on all six counts. He, too, was sentenced to life imprisonment. Both Michelle and Joe avoided the death penalty because of a statewide moratorium. And Urquhart says even after all these years, he still can't comprehend the why question, particularly with this case. Now, one thing I've learned over my 43 years is we can never get into the mind of somebody like this. What we always do as rational human beings, we tend to look for a reason. Why did this person do that? How could this person do that? Why would they do it to the entire family if she just has a beef with her brother? But we can never get into their minds. There is no understanding some of things like this. And I've also learned that some people are just plain evil. And there's not a motive that we can understand other than they are evil, and evil people do evil things. And I clearly think that's what happened in this particular case. If you have a case you would like us to cover, please reach out to me at the Murder Chronicles at CavalryMedia.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.